Welcome, welcome to the inaugural episode of Black Hoodie Alchemy here on the Fringe FM. I am your host, Anthony Tyler. I sincerely appreciate anybody joining me. Uh, and you should know that I'm officially recruiting for my new cult. Um, I plan on getting a mansion like Seaside. And everyone involved in the cult is, uh, you know, you're more than welcome to stay in dog houses out back. It would be great. You know, you could just gonna, like, make a bunch of, like, bedazzled jackets that I will sell. And then I'll spend a lot of that money on methamphetamine and LSD and, I don't know, probably women. Uh, it's gonna be a great time. And I think you're really gonna like the dog houses out back. <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh, seriously, thanks for joining me. Um, uh, we're not gonna start a cult, not yet. <laughs> um, but what we are gonna do is do, um, this weekly radio show slash podcast. <laughs> and, um, you know, you can check it out, um, streaming, um, on any platforms, any podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, or you can, uh, check it out first. When it airs initially um, every Monday evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time. So, uh, shout out to Joe Roop, host of Lighting the Void. Shout out to Ryan Gable of The Secret Teachings. I'm going to give more shout outs too. But um, those are some network buddies of mine. And they've been great helps um, ever since I met them. So, you know, thanks for joining me again. Um, you know, what we're going to really be talking about today is introductory. But you should know um, that in all actuality, I am, uh, my body, like a spirit that's like 76,000 years old does harbor my body and give me like the power of second sight and I can make things levitate and I can, I have the power to like get people to make me sweet bedazzled jackets and um, live in dog houses. Um, and you may be thinking, like, well, why would we live in the dog houses and make the jackets so that you can buy the methamphetamine? Well, uh, God works in mysterious ways. I don't know what to tell you. But, um, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Uh, but these are the things that have been on my mind lately. Not so much the specifics of <laughs> um, the the jackets and whatnot. It's pretty off the cuff there. Um, but the absurdity of cults and the difference between spiritual practices and just cult mentality essentially uh, and so we'll probably get into that a little bit tonight um or whenever you're listening to this but this does air in the evenings so um you know this uh black hoodie alchemy um i chose the uh the the whole black hoodie thing because um it's low-key you know that's uh it's kind of it's comfortable and it kind of has that that punk rock hip hop aesthetic that that suits me, and um, you know there's a time and a place to to pull the hoodie low and get into that uh, that get into the zone, you know, get some work done, uh, and also to feel very capable of getting that work done. But there's also a, a time and place to consider your fallacies and mortality, and how shitty of a person you might be as well, you know, and I think that you should do, um, part of life is you know, figuring out both of those things. And, uh, when, you know, the wisdom between the two, uh, or understanding the difference between the two, that's, that's wisdom in many ways in the long run. And that's something that, you know, I'm always trying to work on as well. But I, uh, I started this show, you know, it's, this is a long time coming, but we're finally here. And, uh, uh, I'm really excited about it. You know, uh, Joe, Joe Roop of Lighting the Void has been trying to get me to do this for quite some time. And I just kind of stuck with guest spots on his show and a bunch of other people's shows. Like, we could do a shout out real quick. We could do some shout outs. Um, uh, Miguel Connor over at, uh, Aeon Pite Gnostic Radio. Soraya Azkath of Where Did the Road Go? Uh, Martin Ferretti, uh, Alchem of the Alchemical Mind and editor of my book Hunt Manual. Uh, Keats Ross over at Prague Magic. Uh, who else? Uh, Alex at the Natural Born Alchemist. Mike and Maurice over at Mind Escape. Uh, I've made a lot of great friends. Um, and 
um, I gotta say, it's, uh, I mean, this just seems like the next logical step. So, you know, I've always been into these things. This is going to be, uh, primarily about the dark and unexplainable, you know, so the, the darker side of metaphysics and for positive reasons too. And it won't always be exclusively dark, but that tends to be where my subject matter and where my tastes lie and, uh, where my subject matter gravitates and, I think that there is not really enough mentioned about it. You either have these people, and I'm not even pointing fingers here. I'm just saying, we're just differentiating here. You have the people who are like real deep into uh, like LaVey and Crowley and just kind of, um, they seem to be just as much into scaring people for fun as they are into any sort of like, technical philosophies or even magical disciplines and i do get that you know i guess there is a little shade of that in me um i think that they were both uh shitheads uh but i i like levey more um and i respect them both for what they did i don't think either of them were evil um that's something we can get into more as uh you know as it comes up um i think that uh I think that the point um, overall that a lot of people miss with those characters is you might not say an, either of them were good people, but they were showmen more than anything. Um, and they, they, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing, but um, they were, they were magnets for infamy and they did that on purpose. That was the whole damn point. So um, when you, have, when you look into people like that, you have to, um, find the common denominators and kind of factor those things out. Like how much were they trying to uh, get people uh, get how, how much were they trying to actually cultivate people's reactions in many. And, and I mean, the same could be said about new age in different ways. You have to sift through different things, but you have to do sifting all the same. And uh, in new age, you know, I've said it before, we find a lack of control methods. You know, that's one thing. If you've ever read anything that LaVey or even Crowley did for that matter, um, it, it, they were at least approaching things fairly systemically. Uh, and New Age mostly lacks all, all those system, uh, system, systemization. I don't know. They, they lack the systems in many cases. Uh, there are some people out there, you know, and, what is new age in the long run? Um, you know, it's a, it's a, a genre to sell books. It's a bookstore shelf. I mean, that's really what I think of it in the long run. Um, that's why I don't use new age to describe myself, nor do I think it fits for that matter. If anything, I'm into esotericism and Fortiana. Um, also meaning just like spiritual philosophy and, uh, the unexplainable. So, but, um, I prefer Esoterica and Fortiana because they are more specific terms. So, and that's, you know, that's what we're going to be diving into here. So, um, what should we talk about? You know, uh, check out my books. If you ha aren't familiar with them or you haven't picked them up yet, Dive Manual and, and Hunt Manual. Uh, Dive Manual is, they're all uh, fourth person narratives in a way where I'm actually keeping and maintaining a dialogue with you the reader as we progress throughout a story um and that story goes through some narrative points and a lot of data uh, and research material and philosophical food for thought and it just kind of goes between the two and dive manual is about the dive into the uh the collective unconscious and the waters of that um um indicated by the divine feminine and um, a lot of it has to do, or some of the crux of the narrative has to do with me essentially being trapped in my own dreams. You know, not permanently. I was waking up, but whenever I was in a dream, I was trapped there uh, for years. Um, and that, and that, that's only part of it. So um, Hunt Manual is less to do with any of my personal experiences, although I do get into some of those a little bit, uh, and more to do with a study of the shadow. Um, the, the Jungian shadow, meaning everything that is processed by the psyche, but 
uh, which still lacks self-identity. It has not been integrated yet. And that can mean everything from, you know, insecurities to traumas to, um, you know, genuinely unexplainable phenomena as, uh, as Hunt Manual gets into. And, um, the link between esotericism and unexplainable phenomena is something I, I, I think is, uh, it has been boiling underneath the surface of a lot of schools of thought for quite some time now. And it hasn't really, it, it's been sitting, um, it has, it's been waiting to boil over for quite some time. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not the only one that says this. I'm not the only one that has these kinds of points of view, but, uh, I'm, I'm a little birdie chirping here. So, because, um, as I like to tell people, um, this might, it, it, you know, so like if we're going with a thesis here, um, I suppose that, you know, so if we look at the gods, for instance, the spiritual deities as archetypes, you know, we see different iterations of common archetypal motifs. What are archetypes? They are, um, they are the forces of nature that coalesce with the human experience. Something that has, um, forced us and, uh, maintained like a relationship with us essentially alongside our adaptational path. You know, think about the sun, for instance, um, electromagnetism, the f- genuine forces of nature that, uh, that personify our adaptational process. Um, chaos theory, cause and effect. Um, all these things have no human characteristics, but we have to deal with them and a time immemorial, what humans do to deal with those things is they humanize them. They characterize them. That's, that's what it's all about. That's how we start to wrap our minds around things. So, and I do think that, um, it's hard to a damn near impossible to look at something like, um, chaos theory and say, this is simply just a matter of physics. Uh, chaos theory being, you know, the flap of the butterfly wing. Um, the, it, it, it could cause a typhoon halfway around the world. That's the old adage. And, um, there's plenty of physics that go along with that. And I've, I've talked about it plenty. Maybe we'll do an episode on it or something, but I don't want to get bogged down in technical details right now. Um, so if the archetypes are the, the psychologization and essentially even in many cases, the biological coding, you know, how our genes express themselves, um, um, if they are the, um, uh, the embodiment of these forces of nature in those ways, what does that say about folklore? You know, the, the beasts of uh, mythology and their carryover into modern cryptozoology. What does that say about UFOs? Um, well, you know, there were plenty of people that have been talking about this for quite some time. And, um, you know, Jung being one of them, the famous psychiatrist that developed analytic psychology, um, you know, who veered off from the tutelage of Freud. And then, uh, we have, at least as far as my greatest references and inspiration go, um, not a surprise to anyone that's heard me talk about this stuff before. John Keel, the famous 14 investigator that was known for writing the book, The Mothman Prophecies, which became the movie. Um, and Jacques Vallée, you know, he's received uh, more mainstream acknowledgement being on like the friggin Joe Rogan podcast and whatever else. But um, definitely a very legitimate scholar and ufologist as far as I'm concerned. I mean, he's a physicist for Christ's sake. But uh, who else? Um yeah, Manly P. Hall, the 33rd degree Freemason, um, that, you know, uh, gets us into Freemasonry will inevitably start getting you into conspiracy theories. Um, I don't plan on going too much into conspiracies on this show because there is a clear oversaturation. There's a bunch of different echo chambers for these conspiracy theories, and I'm not really interested in contributing to that. Um, granted, I do think that there are valid legitimate conspiracy theories out there uh, you know n- you need not look any further than mk ultra but i uh i'm just not really 
it seems like people have pulverized that dead horse to pieces, like to a fine paste, and I'm just not interested in that. So uh, if you're looking for a, a meaty chunk of conspiracy theory to really sink your teeth into, this is the wrong spot. We'll definitely get into it a little bit, but that'll be peripheral. Um, suffice it to say that since I'm going to talk about mainly P. Hall a little bit, um, I will say that, you know, if you're the type of person, I, there are crazy things that go on, especially with, uh, the elite in, you know, throughout history in all societies, the, the elite when they're around long enough and when they've, um, become accustomed to a certain outrageous level of wealth, crazy things start to happen. You know, people start to, uh, look at themselves as less than people or more than people rather they start to look at others as less than and as objects for them to use and we see this happen time and time again with politicians um the cia on record at this point has uh has had plenty to do with human trafficking and you know blackmail involving politicians i mean these things uh, plenty of them are on record at this point and before epstein for that matter so believe me, I get it. I, I get where um, the really hardcore conspiracy theorists are coming from. Uh, you know, plenty of them are my friends and uh, family members, but uh, you got to draw a line at some point. And, you know, for instance, Freemasonry, while we can look at Skull and Bones um, and, 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 and even Bohemian Grove and hold a reasonable skepticism and, you know, a reasonable amount of suspicion uh, but if you're looking at your average Masonic Lodge on your street corner in your downtown, uh, wherever you live, there's probably one there. And if you're thinking that that is part of the New World Order and that those people are sacrificing children and harvesting adrenochrome in there, etc., you need to come back down a little bit because most of this at this point is just a good old boys club that was um, that served a greater purpose earlier in our history especially american history but um and a lot of it just has to do with charity work but a lot of it has to do with uh the study of philosophy and comparative religion um under an umbrella to find the common denominators um you know it's very you know if i appreciate tradition and i appreciate community i'm not a freemason um i'm not a part of any institution but uh, my great-grandfather was a Freemason, uh, a 32nd-degree Freemason to the Scottish Rite, you know, so, um, and he was very much interested in philosophy, um, but he wasn't really, I would wager I'm far more uh, interested in this stuff than he is, um, as far as I know, at least. <laughs> you, know, you know, Masons have to be secret, but I mean, my grandfather was not known to be a man that walked around talking about um, comparative religion and things so um yeah um, but it, he had to be familiar with it there's a certain amount of pageantry involved with things like masonry um and point being ultimately other than just us getting to know each other a little bit host to listener um i uh manly p hall is a great resource you know as far as the literature is concerned and as far as the extensive extensive amount of his lectures are concerned he was always very open source. Um, he was a Mason. He he didn't become a Mason until he studied them a great deal in addition to uh, the rest of comparative religion and philosophy at large. Um, but uh, uh, after writing and, you know, uh, researching them so much publicly and, you know, publishing material, uh, he eventually was accepted as an honorary 33rd degree member. So... Uh, and Manly P. Hall, you know, we could talk about this at some point. Um, he was actually killed uh, when he was very old in highly suspicious ways that seems like a contract killing. And, you know, again, <laughs> I'm not against conspiracy theories. I'm just saying when we get into it's real easy to um, just, you know, play connect the dots. And ultimately we come up with a better story than we do an actual logical explanation for things so but to say that there aren't common denominators throughout uh the power grabs throughout history um is a bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. 
you know, there are common denominators. People become inspired by one another. But to say that there's a multi-thousand-year conspiracy, and especially to say that that hinges on Freemasonry, is uh, it's just far too reductionist. You know, we could say that there's political elite um, that congregate with all sorts of different masks, whether that be Freemasonry, whether that be um, the Knights of Columbus, whether that be the the you know there's there's asian secret societies it's not just in the west of course but uh being in the west i'm familiar with most of them in the west and i don't have a list of a bunch of secret societies here for you but (laughs) rest assured there's plenty of them um so see we're like 20 minutes in we got about um another 10 minutes until the half hour break so i'm gonna get into this um then we went on our little masonic segue but the reason i bring that up is because we have the time and i wanted to set the tone for the show a little bit i want to read this excerpt or actually it's a uh a transcription uh from a manly p hall lecture given in 1983 when hall was 82 years old and it's on the development of spirituality as an adaptation now I, uh, I I let up a little bit talking about the um, the Venn diagram between esotericism and unexplainable phenomena. Because I mean, if you think about it, without um, religious structure involved, all these strange deities and angels and everything else that happens is that not unexplainable phenomena? How much does that really different from a Mothman? Um, like honestly. You know, if you didn't just have your dogma, would there really be a whole lot of a difference? Granted, I'm not saying Mothman is an angel. I'm just saying, aren't these in the same general area? And they're certainly, I don't think they're material in the sense that we are. So anyway, without further ado, let's uh, let's get into this. Let's read this a little bit because uh, I think that this, while other people talk about this, uh, some of the names I mentioned... Um, other names being, you know, Rudolf Steiner uh, was very big into this adaptational spirituality. Austin Osman Spare, the uh, the proto chaos magician that inspired people like uh, Peter Carroll, which are you know the one of the more prominent chaos magicians. Chaos being chaos theory for those that don't know. Um, so, but this is one of the most eloquent ways I've I've heard it put before. So here we go. Um, Manly P. Hall, a little bit of uh, of a lecture he gave, uh, which is also a bit in my book Dive Manual. So you can get that if you haven't yet. <laughs> uh, to study our heritage from the past is not simply a waste of time because most of that heritage is still with us. If not in the political and social circles of life, at least in the internal subjective moods of our own existence. At a very early date, it became evident that the human being was in serious difficulty trying to understand where he was what he was, and why he was. He looked around him and he saw nature unfolding, but behind this nature, as he saw it, he thought there must be something else. But he had no way of really trying to discover what it was. He was bound within the small area of his own life existence. It was a strange world with everything happening and no explanation for why it happened. Gradually, it became obvious that the human being had to have some type of internal existence with which, uh, with... <laughs> uh, had to have some type of internal existence which would carry with it faith and hope in his material life. Gradually, we find the rise of various beliefs. Probably some of the earliest are the shamanistic, the belief in spirits and ghosts, all this type of thing. All these believings came not from a carefully studied or planned exploration of nature, they came from a desperation of an individual or a group of individuals struggling desperately for hope to escape from loneliness, to no longer be an isolated creature in an unknown world. The human being was very much like a castaway on a desert island. He had no resources available to him except what he could contrive with his own ingenuity. As time went on, there was inevitably a demand for some type of organized faith, faith in realities that are not visible. But how is the primitive man going to analyze invisible realities? How is modern man going to analyze them? Actually, it all seems to have arisen within the person himself. This desperate need resulted in a type of solution, 
a solution that was sufficient for the moment and which it was always hoped would be improved and perfected in the course of time. This temporary solution is still the answer that we have to use, but with all our progress, with all our skills, our intellectualism, the individual is still lonely. He is still comparatively helpless in a world infinitely too great for him. Now he has not only to combat now he not only has to combat nature or adjust to its circumstances, but he must try and survive the complex situation set up by the human nature in this little thing we call Earth. So, altogether, our beginnings of hope, faith, and love lie in the desperate need for something that was superior to self, something that was stronger than we are, some ever-present help in time of trouble. Trouble was common, help was scarce. The individual went through countless miseries and misfortunes, but there had to be some hope, something to sustain the struggling creature on its long evolutionary path. Magic was bestowed upon a combination of factors where it was not regarded as existing in separate elements in and of themselves. As a result of this, it gradually dawned on the human being that almost any combination of circumstances which he could contrive, if brought together, had a new meaning, a meaning that might contribute to his own survival. Faith is a tremendously healing power, the only answer we have to the destructive force of fear. So, from faith came a great development of beliefs and ideals. These were not always provable or demonstrable, but that was not the point. It wasn't whether or not you could scientifically sustain them. The real answer was that people accepted them, believed in them, deposited in them hope for the future. As time went on, religion and philosophies became more complicated and it was inevitable that effort should be made to rationalize faith, to bring it under the control of reason. It was apparent that if the mind supported the faith, it was stronger. And so we have all kinds of philosophies, mysticisms, esotericism, and every type of intellectual interpretation of natural phenomena. We have it today, but today we have a little difficulty. Knowing that faith is basically the cornerstone of survival, we find that many forms of knowledge particularly scientific knowledge, exists largely to destroy faith. Now in the course of all these problems, certain facts of human life became increasingly obvious, and these facts of life are perhaps somewhat summarized with our relationship with the mystery of death. It is a problem that the primitive man could never understand. He tried to dramatize this mystery, he tried to glorify it. He placed a treasury of art and beauty and wealth in the tombs of his kings. He did everything to imagine that man after death lived in a beautiful land, but he had no way of proving it. He had no way of justifying it other than by faith. But this faith was so important, so desperately needed, that gradually a new type of interpretation of life was built upon faith. Faith justified, not rationalized. It became obvious that there had to be some reason for existence. So, we gradually developed in ancient times a belief in tutelary deities, godlings of various kinds, deities of agriculture. Everywhere there were godlings and spirits that came to help or to be present. Folklore is loaded with these concepts. Where did they come from? They were not really simply projects of an imagination. They were the visualizations of hope, of faith, of the realization of a need and an inner conviction that there must be something somewhere to meet that need. Now we're talking about long ago, but we're not talking about things that no longer exist. The needs of our ancestors are still exactly the same as our own. We have made practically no progress in the area of the fulfillment of our internal needs, and we have gradually tried to assume that they did not exist. We've tried to assume that everything is accident and that all traits are hereditary. We do not have any solution to the great hunger of the human being for inner strength, for the power to meet the pressures of the world around him, a world that is constantly betraying the world within him. In this emergency we find, therefore, in every major religion of the world a development of intervening deities, beings of various qualities that existed between the final ultimate theology and the common mortal life of man. Now, as time went on, these speculations became more and more firmly established in the human mind until, in many instances, these are no longer speculations. They are now traditional facts that have come to us through the wisdom of our ancestors. Now, maybe these facts are more factual than we'd like to realize, because actually our best instrument for discovering the facts of things must lie within ourselves. It is our own insight that is the nearest to truth we can ever have, 
and unless something comes from within ourselves, the larger work cannot be perfected. All right, that was an excerpt from one of Manly P. Hall's lectures from 1982, I believe for the Philosophical Research Society. And we got a break coming up, so stay with us. Um, We'll be back shortly to pick that apart and probably talk about cults a little bit more. Listen. As we explore the mysteries of the universe, the unknown, high strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential, Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on The Fringe FM. Thousands of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot, and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at IamDarkWaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best at IamDarkWaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dogman Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dogman Murder in Hurricane Ida, even a story of someone trying to kill a dogman. Louisiana Water Demon Stories. Sign up today and become a member at IamDarkWaters.com. That's IamDarkWaters.com. From parapsychology to pop conspiracy, and from parapolitics to health and esoterica, I'm Ryan Gable, host of The Secret Teachings, and I'll bring you all of this and more five nights a week right here on The Fringe FM. By using critical thinking and objectivity as keys to understanding, utilizing, and appreciating the secret teachings of all ages. You can catch The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday right here on The Fringe FM after Joe Roop and Lighting the Void. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard. And they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. Do you want to escape the simulation? Well, join me, Jess Rogie, every week as we explore a variety of different realities to help expand our minds and find out a little more about this world we live in. Escape the simulation with me live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern here on TheFringe.fm. Yohoi there, it's Gigi from Shift Happens, and you're listening to the one and only Fringe FM. Well, at least I'd imagine so. I'm not sure how else, uh, you know, you'd be hearing this. sweet noir jazz welcome back to black hoodie alchemy i'm your host anthony tyler you can catch me airing every monday evening on the fringe fm 6 p.m pacific time or you can catch me on all streaming platforms in the podcast version um you know spotify apple whatever on tuesdays before the break we were talking about um manly p hall's 
excuse me, Manly P. Hall's bit uh, from a lecture he gave where he talks about the adaptational value of spiritual thought and faith itself. And this is a very Jungian sentiment. This is a very Keelian sentiment. You know, the Mothman prophecies, that whole name was not just for no reason. They're uh, Keel's best guess to the phenomena that people saw at Point Pleasant uh, throughout those like 10 months or so, I believe, was it was uh, vaguely prophetic. You know, even if nothing else, maybe like trauma induced. Some people even think that uh, Point Pleasant might have been some sort of a, a, like mass hallucinogen CIA MK Ultra thing. Who knows? Either way, people saw crazy stuff there. And um, even if a psychedelic is involved, that doesn't mean you didn't see some crazy stuff. And that's part of the whole thing here. You know, dreams are uh, an important part in understanding this phenomena. Uh, phantom limb syndrome, as I've talked about in the past, how uh, we can trick our brains into relieving phantom limb pain through reflections, you know, mirror boxes, um, uh, where the our intact limb juxtaposes where the limb is missing and we actually feel the movement. Well, you wouldn't if you don't have a missing limb, but... You know, I've talked about it before, uh, Phantoms in the Brain by V.S. Ramachandran. Faith and trickery are very useful uh, in the human experience. They're adaptation mechanisms. Now, you can use that to your advantage uh, for your own advancement, um, hopefully altruistic, but not always. Uh, and, and that's magic. That's, uh, that's mysticism. That's the religious mindset, you know, um, getting in tune with a, a transpersonal state of mind, something greater than you, and learning to work with the dynamic forces of nature that we personify and that uh, in turn affect us so greatly. But that's also, if you're not using that for yourself, or if someone like um, a priest that you trust, which you know, I, I tend to get, I, I, I'm a mystic. I'm not a religious person. I'm a mystic. So I think that all of this is primarily individual and then you can choose to express it if you like, but, and then going and getting advice is fine. But the whole priest class thing is, um, not just in Western society, but in general is very touch and go for me. And you got to be careful, uh, and take it on a case by case basis. But that's not to say that you can't find a good priest out there. So other than that, other than someone giving you um, that sort of sagely advice, when these things are taken outside of your own personal discernment, um, they become very quickly cultish. Because if we judge everything by, you know, we say God is good and the devil is bad, I'm not saying we should worship the devil. So people are already loosening their ties. Um <laughs> but I'm saying, first of all, that even these things are symbols, God and the devil. Do they represent dynamic forces of nature as we've been talking about? Yeah, yes, they do. But um, to consider them, here's the thing, man, or woman or anybody out there. Here's the thing, person. <laughs> um, if you look into something like a cult, the history of cults, especially in the modern era, um, is it's easier to understand them in the modern era. Further you go back, the more it's just, uh, well, the more it sheds light on the fact that in general, um, part of what defines a cult is common, common denominators, the consensus. Uh, but not only that, there's also, um, in crowd mentality, that insular mentality. And there's usually more of, uh, Essentially, every time, um, there's always the strong indicator of the archetypal cult leader there. And, you know, a lot of times these people start, whether or not their intentions are good, they start truly believing their own bullshit to begin with. You know, um, Jim Jones started out as, uh, you know, accepted by uh, the politicians in the Bay Area as... Um, a charitable person and a prominent preacher 
You know, he started out as a preacher. Just your average guy, some Joel Osteen guy out there. And then eventually worked his way to what we all know happened in uh, in Jonestown. Um, you know, uh, schizophrenia and, uh, and, and spirituality um, and true crime have a very interesting intersection here. Because what I'm trying to get at here is, yes, the, these are very real principles, um, faith and belief. But there's... There's so much trickery involved for one, you know, a new age and and a just egotistical, narcissistic esotericism. But there's also the uh, the pitfalls in our own psyches. You see, so much evil is done in the name of God. And people who truly feel in their heart of hearts that what they're doing is a righteous thing, and sometimes. The, the, the collective consensus at the moment is that it's a righteous thing, but history might not agree. So, if someone does heinous things in the name of God, um, a Christian would say that, well, it wasn't really God, it was in, it was in the name of the devil. But, it doesn't quite cut it, right? Because that's very dismissive. Um, someone like Richard Ramirez, he actually did things in the name of the devil. And some of that was embellished after he got caught because I think he liked the attention. But it certainly wasn't all embellished. He was, he was definitely into the devil all throughout. Now, what about someone like Herbert Mullins? You ever heard of him? This was a guy... That right after the Vietnam War, right around, you know, early 70s, right around when uh, Ed Kemper was uh, killing people in the San, uh, not the San Francisco, the, the Santa Cruz area. Herbert Mullins was a schizophrenic that heavily partook in LSD and got to a point where he was having visions from Yahweh, um, this demiurgic sort of angry uh very like morally chaotic Yahweh um and Yahweh was telling him to kill people um as a sacrifice to stop a catastrophic earthquake from happening because Yahweh demanded a uh, consistent blood sacrifice and up until then uh the Vietnam war had been satiating him and I'm not sure what was satiating him beforehand but apparently the lack of Vietnam War meant that God came to Herbert Mullins to um, fill in the gap. Um, and so one by one, Herbert Mullins went out killing people. And uh, obviously that part's not funny, but um, you can look into some of his um, some of his interactions in court. And it's so strange how convicted he is. Um, it. And, and then there was Joseph Callinger, um, a schizophrenic shoemaker in Philadelphia. This was in the 80s, um, who was commanded by Yahweh to make the perfect shoe uh, to save mankind orthopedically. I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, and eventually somehow that snowballed into killing people um, to... Uh, it, it just, it, the orthopedics got lost and he just started killing people and like training his children to go out and, um, prostitute themselves and, um, and steal things and graffiti things. And eventually, um, one of his, uh, children ended up being involved with some of the murders that he committed all to, um, with the similar like blood sacrifice thing. You know, look at uh, Westboro Baptist Church. Um, they feel very convicted. Joel Osteen seems like, uh, I don't know. I don't know, actually. Does Joel Osteen really believe his own bullshit? I'm not sure. But maybe. Either way. <clears throat> excuse me. The point is, people, people do... Satanic panic is such is just such a huge issue. 
especially here in America, I guess particularly here in America. Um, but more often than not, religious cults do the worst damage. You know, I was talking um, on uh, Lighting the Void with Joe Roop recently. And we were talking about um, Taylor Glenn Helzer, or it might, maybe Glenn Taylor Helzer. Either way, you can find it looking that up. He was a wannabe cult leader that was raised in the Mormon church. And um, th th things started going off kilter because he was fed all this bullshit um, to make him think that he was Joseph Smith 2.0 by his family and his community. And uh, eventually the pressure got to him. You know, by the time he was in his mid-20s, he was a, he was a successful stockbroker. And uh, he just kind of lost his mind. He started thinking that he was some sort of like Joseph Smith meets Aleister Crowley and that he was going to take over the LDS church and form a nation state within the United States and just uh, like have a harem of women and just rule over um, his nation state. And he had this idea where he was going to take over, um, I, I guess, Utah um, with a team of Brazilian orphan assassins. Um, yes, I'm not joking. You can look that up. And this guy wrote like the 12 principles of magic, which were just absolutely insane. Um, you can go uh, um, check out that episode that I did with Joe uh, for more on that. I won't um, repeat myself too much there, but. The whole point is, at some point, if you have too much God, you'll bring out the devil in yourself. Because it's the balance. And what does that mean? That you should go out and do evil things sometimes? No. No. What I'm talking about here is, is shadow work. You know, if you're one of those people that's just always avoiding the negative, and you don't let yourself get angry... And you just stuff it all. That, that's what it equates to in the long run. You're stuffing it all down and you're avoiding. And eventually that shit blows up. And it's going to find a way to come out. And it might not be a blow up either. It might be a slow steady tilt into insanity. Until one day you start thinking that you have to give blood sacrifices to Yahweh. It might not be that bad. Because most of us aren't schizophrenic. But you know, this is what happens when... When people, when this is how normal people get to points where they do heinous things. So, food for thought, this is going to be a lot of what Black Hoodie Alchemy has to offer, since this is the inaugural episode, and some of this is introductory. I'm going across the map a little bit, because it's not only important to see the value of looking into metaphysics and philosophy and morality and ethics. <clears throat> But it's also important to see how easy it is to get wrapped up in psychosis and sickness because there's a fine line between genius and insanity. And you don't have to consider genius like Albert Einstein, just your own personal genius. Everyone has insight and moments of it. And genius, maybe even just in the cathartic sense, where you finally come to terms with something in your life or some traumas that you've had. That can be genius in and of itself. Um, take credit for some of the things you've done. You know, that doesn't mean that we're all geniuses, but I'm sure damn near every single person has at least one moment of genius in their life, if not many more, depending on how hard you try. But we have to be careful. Because at some point, the more, the, more, the more we end up not knowing how to separate and draw the line between um, our, our, our capability and uh, our self-confidence and the, uh, the, the detriment to others and the, the vendetta and uh, the, the entitlement... Um, we can start, we can, without really realizing it, our entire moral compass can be flipped on its head. And soon you are just exploiting everything because you are entirely capable of it. And 
because you're entirely capable of it, you feel that you have the right. You know, um, I'm not sure where, if there are any sort of statistics that would talk about this, or um, or if anyone's already done this. I do not think so, though. I think this would be fairly controversial. Um, but I would very much be interested in, I don't even know how you'd gauge it, really. There'd have to be a lot of control methods, but you could certainly gauge it. You could look at tipping points where people start to fly off the deep end and and find out how often people truly crack. What is the frequency of just total psychological breakdowns at certain tip, uh, certain scales of wealth? The more wealthy you are, the is is it that the more wealthy you are, the more either uh, just uh, you know agoraphobic and anxious and depressed and or psychopathic and sociopathic and with like these god complexes is there a tipping point where the more money brings the more of those um either essentially you disassociate or you think that you are a god among men that's what seems to happen to a lot of wealthy people especially when they're in the spotlight and that's what seems to happen to cult leaders too very similar motivations sometimes. So yeah, is everyone still game to um, go <laughs> and make some bedazzled jackets? Who's with me? I think it's going to be a great time. I'm not joking. Where am I? What is the name of my 6,000-year-old deity that lives inside me? I don't know. <laughs> joking. I'm joking. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, so now all that said, I'm going to read an excerpt from The Eighth Tower by John Keel, 14 Investigator, and I'm going to preface it with the concept and reminder for some of you that a meme is viral. And no, I'm not just talking about internet memes, I'm talking about the actual, the true definition of of the meme being a an, an evolutionary psychological unit and something that helps people um, spread and replicate information and customs in ways that become viral and even incubate within us and um, can contribute and do contribute to envi um, adaptational mechanisms um, or maladaptations in some cases, most certainly, um, because a virus can actually be pro-adaptive or maladaptive. It all just depends. Now, an excerpt from John Keel's The Eighth Tower. Possession is nothing more than an overt, involuntary version of mediumship. The victim's body and consciousness are temporary, temporarily controlled by an exterior intelligence. If the victim and those who investigate his case and try to heal and believe in the devil, then the controlling force assumes that identity. The same thing happens in ufology with the entity claiming to be a spaceman. I soon learned that this intelligence was also emotionally unstrung, childlike, even stupid. Battling this force is like battling a reel of tape in a computer. Unless it is following a carefully programmed procedure, it is discombobulated. The entities so produced have no actual mind of their own. They wander around our dimension as ghosts and goblins, harmless until they find a believer. Then they feed off the mind and emotions of that believer, assuming the identity subconsciously chosen. However, all these weird events and games do have a subtle underlying purpose. They very efficiently provide a cover-up, camouflaging the presence of the real phenomena and its purpose. The apparitions seem to be omens. So, with this excerpt and the bit from Manly P. Hall I gave earlier, a little bit of schizophrenic, true crime, food for thought, um, and a little bit of talk of uh, esotericism in general, a little bit of New Age bullshit, I think it paints a good picture of what is to come with this show. And I hope it was relatively entertaining. 
Hope it was relatively informative. We still have a little bit of time left, but we are certainly getting closer to the end there. And if you haven't yet, like I said, go get my books. You could check out my website, divemind.net. Um, I've made sure to put a lot of food for thought up there. You can find my guest spots with other uh, hosts on other shows. Um, and um, I've had a lot of fun. I've done it for about a couple of years now. So um, I've got plenty of material up there. You can find a Spotify playlist, but I haven't bothered to make a playlist on anything else. So if you... But you can go find them all on my website. Just go check it out and go peruse from there. But yeah, I think it's important to remember in the long run that belief is a tool. And it is a tool that helps us interact with these dynamic forces of nature. But it takes on many different faces, regardless of what's on the other side. I like to keep things empirical in the long run. It could go either way. We don't fully know what's on the other side of these things, but the fact that we experience strange phenomena, religious and otherwise, that has followed us throughout history and helped shape our evolutionary adaptational path and shaped who we are as humans, and, and, and these same things follow us throughout culture, throughout time. What's going on here? I think it's high time we start asking um, some more penetrating, pertinent questions. Instead of just being materialist and dismissive of it all. We have to start really taking into account what's going on in the psyche of the, uh, of the experiencer. Because these things might not be flesh and blood real. God certainly is not some man in the sky. A mothman probably isn't a flying moth humanoid. I question whether or not Bigfoot, I, to me, Bigfoot is probably not a real thing either. Not physically real. Not always. But if poltergeists can do things like throw children around the room in front of cops that will write about it in a police report, which has happened, and that's just one example, then couldn't a Bigfoot leave a print in the ground? And why would the human being be projecting these things? Why would the human brain go through any of this? What are some of the adaptational mechanisms involved in such a strange thing? Well, we can look at um, the aforementioned phantom limb syndrome and the catharsis that comes from the simple projection process of seeing the reflected limb where the limb is missing. And we can also see things like sleep paralysis, as I've talked about before this purge of tension from the central nervous system a, uh, a dysfunction of the body's internal map being projected elsewhere and then being puppeteered by all sorts of different things our 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 shadow complex our drives our, or our excuse me our insecurities things that keep us up at night because it's certainly not just tricks of the brain, not just simply shadows. It's not just your brain throwing your map out there, your bodily map out there. That's the beginning of it. And sure, it is just a medical thing. I'm not saying that people who experience sleep paralysis and the shadow people are experiencing demonic phenomena. But it could lead to that. That's where I'm at at this point. And we'll unpack that more as um, as the show goes on. There's a lot more to all this. There's a lot more food for thought. Um, I really ran through a whole bunch of different subjects with one overarching theme that hopefully stood strong throughout the episode. And I hope you enjoyed it. We're getting closer to the end here. We're wrapping things up. Thank you for joining me. Again, you're listening to Black Hoodie Alchemy, and I'm your host, Anthony Tyler, here on The Fringe FM, every Monday, 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I really appreciate y'all tuning in, and keep that food for thought. Belief is a tool, and it really depends on how you use that tool. You know, you could build a, ha uh, a house with a hammer, or you could start smashing 
people's faces in. What's it going to be? More soon. Stay tuned. Catch you next time.